we are thinking together about this idea, we have the conviction that how you look at something matters a lot. And so we're looking at episodes in the life of David, the great king of Israel, King David. We're looking at examples of his life where we're seeing what it means to look through new eyes. Now, before I begin, I was thinking this week about when I first came to Renaissance Church as pastor, as a pastor. And one of the first things that I did here is I taught a class on prayer. And very specifically, what uh, we did in that class was we looked at the Psalms. Some theologians have called the Psalms, it's right there in the middle of your Bible, the prayer book of the Bible. And if you are thinking about wanting to learn more about prayer, there's just no better place that you can go. So we looked at the Psalms. And if you've ever looked at the Psalms, you know that about half of the Psalms, 75 of them or so, are attributed to David, that he wrote those Psalms, that he prayed them, that God inspired David to pray in the way that he did, and that he inspired it in such a way that it would be placed in the Bible so that you and I would learn prayer from those Psalms. So in a way, you could say David is one of our teachers of prayer. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, Oh God, I love to do your will. Your law is written on my heart. David prayed that and he meant it. And it's the same David that we're going to read about today who committed adultery and who lied about it for a long time and who had people murdered in order to try to cover it up. And it's the truth that's the same for all of us. Inside of David were so many beautiful, lovely things coexisting with a real darkness. You look at David's life, and his was a life of service and love, and he was a man after God's own heart. That's what Scripture says, but he was also somebody who sin grew up in his life and bore such poisonous fruit that was so destructive to him and to the people around him. And I'm using this word sin And that might be hard for some of us to swallow. We might think that that's sort of an outdated way to think about things. We might argue that it's not even very helpful. But one thing you cannot argue with is the truth that you and I have been given choices. We have free will to make decisions, and the decisions we make can have either beautiful and wonderful and life-giving consequences, or they can have disastrous and destructive consequences, too. When I look out at this group of people right now, when I look at all of you, I see both of those things. Mostly I see the beauty of who you are, each one of you made in God's image, beloved of God, endowed with wonderful gifts. One of the great things about being a pastor is I get to hear about some of the things that you all are doing in love for serving the people around you, caring for the people around you. Renaissance, you are doing wonderful things, beautiful things. Keep doing them. But I also know it's the case that in each of our lives, there is this root that can take hold and it can bear poisonous fruit. It can do things that bring the most dire consequences. And so that's why we're looking in this story. In a way, you'd want to look away from this episode in David's life. You don't want to look at it. It's too ugly. And if you think about our sermon series, Through New Eyes, this is an example of when David was not looking through new eyes. He was just looking through old natural eyes, but what we are going to do, what you and I are going to do right now is we're going to walk through this story of David, and in this terrible episode, I want God to give us new eyes. I am going to ask you to do what I've been doing this week. I want you to pray, and I want you to ask God to show you things in this story, not just about David, but maybe about yourself, 
Sometimes when uh, preachers preach, sometimes when I preach sermons, I have points, you know, kind of take you through them, and they all start with the same letter or something like that. (laughs) We're not going to do that this week. We're just going to walk through the story, and we're going to let God speak to us. We're going to see if we don't are able to listen and see through new eyes, not only David, but ourselves, so that, and here's the purpose, so that we would turn away from the dark and turn towards the light. So let's take a look at this passage. If you have your Bibles with you, it's 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll begin at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to come up on the screen here. It begins like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Let's stop there. In this very first verse, David hasn't cheated yet. He hasn't lied. He hasn't committed murder. But before any of that begins, you see the soil in which all those things are going to grow. This very first verse. And the soil that all those things are going to grow in is that David has turned away from his mission. You see, it says there that in the springtime, the kings go out to battle. Who's the king in this passage? David, David, right? But he's not out there. He sent somebody else to do what he's supposed to be doing. In this uh, place, the heavy rains come in the wintertime, and it makes roads impassable, and it makes it difficult for the military to go out and secure their borders and press back enemies. But in the spring, that's when the kings go out. But in the spring, David has sent out Joab. He's a general. We'll hear about him in a little bit. And David has neglected the mission that he's been given by God. God has called him to be the king. I want you to do this. This is what you're called to. But David has forgotten his mission. He's forgotten who he is. And for you and I, I'm bringing this up because this is true of each one of us. You've been given different missions in your life by God. I look out again at this, at this group of people and I see people that have been given wonderful and beautiful missions by God. It's true of each one of you. You have been given the mission of being a friend. Did you know that? That many of you have been given the mission of being friends to people that God has put in your life, and it's your mission, it's your call to care for them and to love them and to encourage them. That's an important mission. I hope you never forget that. I hope you don't neglect the important mission you've been given to be a friend to some of the people in your life. I look out and I see also people who are married. And you've taken vows, you've made promises to care for that person that God has entrusted to you. That's a mission. So your mission is to take care of that person and serve them and love them and and guide them and be there for them. I look out and I see children. Some of you are children who are still in your parents' home. And some of you are older and you have parents, but it doesn't matter. You still have a mission to be a son or a daughter to be honorable and to be reverent and to help and to care for parents. Some of you are parents and you have children. That's a hard mission. (laughs) Be a parent. Shepherd people through their lives, help to care for them. That is an important mission. But the most important mission that any of you has ever been given, listen to me, the most important mission that you have ever been given in your life is to be a beloved child of God to be adopted into God's family and to receive his love that he has for you, to belong to him and to be shaped into someone beautiful, to receive his love and then to give that love out into the world. That is an astounding mission that is for each one of you. And where you and I can begin to go into the darkness is when we say, 
I don't want to have my mission anymore. I don't want to be a husband anymore. Maybe just for now. I'm not going to be a husband. Right now, I'm not a husband. I don't want to be a son anymore. I don't, it's too hard. I don't want to be a beloved child of God. I'm sick of it. Because that's what David is doing here. He's saying, I don't want to be the king anymore. And that's the soil in which all of this poisonous fruit is going to begin to come up. He's abandoning his mission. He's forgotten who he is. You're going to see that as we keep going. Take a look at this, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. It happened late one afternoon when he arose from his couch. He's getting out of bed at five in the afternoon. What's he been doing? Just playing video games all day? I don't know what's going on here, but he has abandoned his mission. And now, because he's lost his mission, he's lost his focus, he's no longer becoming the king that God wants him to be, he finds another focus. And you might say, oh, yeah, he finds focus in that beautiful woman. No. His focus is on himself. The, the woman that he sees, she's only the circumstance. She's only the occasion for his sickness that's welling up inside of him. But he isn't focused on her. He's focused on himself. He's focused on his own desire. He's focused on his own pleasure. He's focused on his own wants. That's what he's looking at here. He's not thinking about her. And you'll see this in the next verse. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David is sliding really hard here morally because he's thinking about being with somebody who's not his wife. And he shouldn't have anybody who is not his wife. He shouldn't be in that kind of intimate relationship with anybody who's not his wife, but it's worse than that. Because who he finds out Bathsheba to be is, she's from a military family. Somebody says, oh, that's Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. David knows Eliam. Eliam was one of his mighty men. That's what the Bible calls them. Special elite forces that came to David even before he went to the throne who went with David on his earliest battles were loyal to him, uh, defended him, stuck with him through thick and thin. They weren't getting paid much. They were in the most difficult circumstances. Eliam was one of those people. So he says, who's that girl? Oh, that's, that's Eliam's girl. That's his daughter. Oh, and who is she married to? She's married to Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is also a special forces warrior in David's army. So who does he hear this woman is? She's from a military family. He knows her family. And yet he still says, I don't care. I'm going to take her. See, he's, he's already sliding. He's doing what usually has to happen when you slide into sexual sin. And I'll tell you, this passage is not primarily about sexual sin. You know, somebody asked me before the service, they said, is this about, you know, this is kind of one of those erotic, sexy stories. There's nothing really sexy about this. Instead, what David is doing is he's depersonalizing and he's dehumanizing Bathsheba. He has to. And that's usually the case in sexual sin, not always. But, but let's think a moment about pornography. If you think about pornography, if you think about the women who have been ensnared and trapped within the production of pornography, and it's mostly women, and not all, but mostly, the way that women get into that practice in the production of pornography is not because they came from warm, caring homes where people were looking out for them. 
And the way that they stay ensnared there is not because there are people taking care of them. It's stories of neglect and abuse in childhood. And then it's stories of addiction and abuse and coercion and sometimes even slavery. That's how people end up in pornography. And so when you look at that image, you can't think that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. That's somebody that someone cares about. You can't do that. You have to totally depersonalize it and dehumanize the person there. Somebody there who's caught in a crucible of suffering that is so dire that if you thought about it too long, it would break you. And so here, that's what David is doing. You know, whenever the Bible talks about the story of David and Bathsheba, it never talks about Bathsheba's sin. It doesn't mean she did or she didn't. But it means that the sin chiefly that David is committing here is his neglect of the mission that God has given him and his neglect of the God who cares and loves, loves him. And he's not thinking about who she is and he's not thinking about, he just wants to take. So take a, take a look at verse four. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. There is nothing romantic about this. It's all verbs. Send, take, come to him, lay. That's it. There's nothing special about this. There's nothing cool or romantic about this. This is just David following his desire and he's taking. One theologian that I looked at uh, studying this said the most damning verb here really is take. That's what you do with a thing. I'm going to take. And that's the nature of sin. The nature of sin usually is I'm going to take. I want something I will take. And you can see this most when you turn it around because the nature of love is to give. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God gives his son. He looks out to a world that's just like this, people that he cares about, people that he loves, and he said, I'm going to give them my son. And he gives his son, Jesus Christ, to us, and then Jesus just does exactly what his father does. He knows how to give too. And so right before Jesus ascends to the father, he says, I'm gonna give them the Holy Spirit. And so God gives and he gives and he gives because he's the God of love. And he says, I want you to be part of this divine dance with me. You should give away too. You should give the love that I'm giving. You should give it away and it's gonna be okay because it's unlimited, it's infinite, it's free and you'll never run out of it. And so you can give, you can come here and you can give thanks. You can never run out of thanks and you can give to the people around you. Don't worry, your bank account isn't gonna go down. Your, 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 your love bucket is gonna never be empty because God's gonna keep filling it. And David here says, I'm sick of that divine dance of self-giving. I want to take. I'm tired of being a husband. I'm tired of being a king. I'm tired. I'm going to take. And so he brings Bathsheba and they do sleep together. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant. She finds out that she's pregnant and she sends word to David. And it's a really big deal because the timing doesn't work out. Uriah, her husband, has been gone too long. Uriah would know. The people around them would know. So David goes into spin mode, and he tries to cover it up. And you know, people who are ensnared in sin, we'll see this as we keep going, sometimes they're not too bright. David isn't too bright about how he tries to cover this up. This is what he does. He calls back Uriah from the front, from the battle, this special forces warrior, and he brings him back and he invites him into his house. 
And you can read all about this in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, Uriah comes in and David says, so um, I brought you back to ask, uh, how's Joab? Uriah says, Joab the general? Yeah, how is he? He's fine. Okay, good. How's the battle? Uriah says, it's fine. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad we had this talk. Uh, Now I would like you to go down to your house and why don't you spend some time with your wife? He's trying to spin it. He's trying to get it so that Uriah will go down and be with his wife. They'll be together intimately and then everyone will think that the baby is really Uriah's. And the text, the scripture says that David even sends a present after him. It's almost certainly wine and food that he sends down with him. Go down to your house, enjoy your wife, have a good time, have some R&R, it'll be great. David says this to Uriah, Uriah says to David, no, I'll never do that. He says, all my fellow soldiers are in the field, they can't be with their wives. I came back here because you asked me to, but I'm not going to go and be with my wife. I'm going to go out and sleep with the soldiers, the one that are protecting you in your palace. (laughs) Oh, shoot, we've got an honorable man on our hands. Oh, no. It's the worst thing. It's the most awful thing that somebody like David can encounter, somebody who's honest, just, loyal. But David's persistent. He keeps chipping away at him, wakes up the next day. He says, "Uh, Uriah, why don't you have dinner with me tonight? So they have dinner together. This is all in scripture, by the way. And David plies him with alcohol all night. He gets him drunk. When you're a soldier and the king says to you, here's another glass of wine, you can't say no. He feeds him wine all night and makes him drunk. He figures, well, his inhibitions will go down. He'll go down with his wife, but he doesn't. He goes back out and sleeps with the soldiers. So his plan to cover this all up has been foiled by honesty, loyalty, and faithfulness. So now he's got to come up with something else. And this is what he comes up with. He gets out the royal uh, document and he begins to write and he writes He writes something to Joab and he writes it out. And this is what he writes. He says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And then he folds it up and he puts the signet seal on it, seals it all up. And he hands it to Uriah. And he says, you should take this back to Joab. David is not only sliding morally too, but you know what I said before? He's not so very smart. Think about what he's just done. He is really losing it here. He has just put his royal seal and his signature on a death warrant for one of his special soldiers. And he's gonna give it to somebody else in the military. And also the plan that he has to cover this up is really dumb. Because he's saying, uh, here's what we'll do. Uh, Joab, give it the command for all of my special forces soldiers to go up into the worst fighting and then tell everybody but Uriah to come back. That's not going to cover anything up. All those soldiers are going to say, whoa, whoa, wait, why are we doing this? Why are we leaving him up there? It's not going to make it so less people know. It's going to make it so that more people know. And besides that, those soldiers would never do that. Leave him up front. So Joab reads between the lines. He says, I don't know why. But the old man who has lost it wants Uriah dead, so I'm a soldier and I have to follow his orders, so I've got to send the whole unit into a really bad position. 
I've got to send them into really heavy and thick fighting in a strategically stupid way. And that's what he does. And what happens is not only that Uriah dies, but several other men die too. He sends word back to David. He says, congrats, whatever you wanted, Uriah dead, it happened. We also lost a whole bunch of other people too. Now let's pause here for just a second. Look at where we've come from. We started with David and his desire and just a glance. You remember that? It was just a glance, just a woman, just, just, just looking just for a second. You ever think that? I'm, just, I'm doing this, it's, just, it's not a big deal. It's just a little bit. It's just, it's just one time. It's just one little, it's an angry thing. I know I shouldn't say, I'm gonna say it. It's just one little thing and now we've gotten to a place where David has committed multiple murders. It began with just a little something. And now we're to a place where it's multiple murders. I had one heard one theologian, as I studied this, said that sin is sort of like an acorn. It's just, it's this little tiny seed and inside of it is a whole oak tree. It begins very small, but if it takes root and it begins to come up, it's this entire tree. And it's actually more than that because what's on that one oak tree inside of the acorn? What's all over it? Other acorns, Right? So inside one little acorn is enough wood to cover the earth. And it's the same thing with our sin. We don't know how far it's going to go. We can't control it. You get from one glance to murder, multiple murders. And when I was putting this sermon together, I thought that would be a cool line. It goes from one glance to multiple murders. (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, you know, that's really cool. And then I thought, you, know, well, you can't say that, Vito, because that's too, too dramatic. It's too dramatic. It's way too dramatic because sometimes you say or do something and it doesn't go too far. You say, well, I did this and it's, it, it, it's not too big of a deal. And the truth is, the sin that you and I commit, it doesn't end in multiple murders all the time. It almost never does. But here's the truth. Listen now. You can never tell or control how far your sin is going to go. You can't. David wasn't able to do it. He was the king. He had control over everything. And he cannot control what's going on here. He can't do it. And maybe you thought that. You thought, well, I can kind of control this. You can imagine a conversation between David and Bathsheba. Let's assume that their relationship was consensual. Now, we have to assume that because we don't know it for sure. Many theologians and scholars are sort of of, of different opinions on this. Was this a consensual relationship? We don't know. But let's assume that it was. Let's assume what their conversation would have been. They might have said something like this. They might have said, well, we know this isn't right, but this is between us. We're two consenting adults, and we'll bear the responsibility for whatever happens. No, they can't. They can't at all. They can't control it. David can't control it. You can't control the sin that is unleashed when you leave your mission and when you run into the dark. You can't do it. I can't go into all of it right now, but David's life was turned upside down in a terrible way after this. The ramifications of what he did here not only impacted those other families who lost fathers and husbands, but also it impacted his family. It tore his family apart. It impacted his children. It impacted all of Israel. You can't control it. You can say those sorts of things. Well, we're two consenting adults. It doesn't, well. Or maybe you've, maybe you've had this thought in your mind. You say, well, I'm in business, and I know that I shouldn't be doing this particular thing, but everybody does it. If I don't do it, I'm going to fall behind. And it's not that big of a thing in the grand scheme of things. You don't know that. You can't anticipate 
what your brokenness will break. Or let me talk real quick to the children that are here or to the students. If you're in elementary school or middle school or high school or college or, or, or around that age, let's say this happens. Let's say somebody says something awful about you. Somebody says something insulting and everybody laughs, puts you down in a way. And you think that, that's not fair. And when that happens, you want to do the natural thing. You want to say something bad about them. You want to say something awful about them. And so let's say you decide to say something awful about them too. Make somebody laugh at them. Let's say you say something that's true. And your thought process is going to be, well, this is just the way it goes. I mean, it's just, I'm going to say something and people will laugh. It's not that big of a deal. You don't know that. You can't control. You do not know how your words, when unleashed upon somebody, you don't know what the effects will be. Because sin is always something which is utterly uncontrollable by any of us. It's too big. It's too destructive. Our little decisions, it's just, it's one time. It's one glance. It's one word. It's one corner cut. It's one time where I'm not going to show up. It's one time when I show up and I know I shouldn't. I don't want to be a friend anymore, just this time. I don't want to be a husband. I don't want to be a wife. You can't control it. And it will begin to spring out and it will do things to other people and it will do things to you. One of the things that it will do to you is it will numb you. I mean, one way you think about it, you think, well, if you have a numbed, dulled conscience, you'll commit sin. Yes. But it will also turn around the other way. If you commit sin, it will dull your conscience and you will begin to say and do things that you would never have imagined. Take a look at what David says when he finds out that those soldiers died because of what he decided to do. This is the message he sends to Joab. Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. That is chilling. You know what he's saying? He's saying, well, soldiers die. It happens. Happens in battle. What are you going to do? But soldiers don't die in battle like this. They didn't, he didn't die. These soldiers didn't die because they were protecting Israel or because of a noble cause. They died because David was responsible for their deaths. And David is doing what all of us do. We numb our conscience and we spin a protective cocoon of self-deception and, and rationalizations and explanations that in a lot of ways almost work too good. The people around us might buy them. We ourselves might even buy them. We don't want to see things through new eyes. We want to see things through old eyes. We want to see things through eyes in a way that it will make it better for us. And that's exactly what David is doing. Check this out. Do you see this, this phrase, do not let this matter trouble you? You see that? There's something going on there in that phrase that you cannot see in the English. But in Hebrew, literally, this is what it literally says. It says, let this thing not seem evil in your eyes. He's saying to Joab, you know what we did was evil, and I know what we did was evil, but let's just not think about it that way. Let's not look at it that way. Let's look at it in a different kind of way. Think about that for a moment. You can always find ways to look at things in a different way. David probably would have said, here's how I'm going to look at it. I still get to be king, and I'm a good king, and if I had gotten taken down by this scandal, I wouldn't be able to be king anymore, and who knows would be the king, and I'm sure this wasn't the best thing, but I still get to be king. I'll look at it that way. Or he could look at it this way. You know what? Now, 
Bathsheba, I'm going to take care of her in a way Uriah never could have. I'll take care of her better. That sometimes is what you, when, you, when you pursue sin, when you pursue wickedness, you try to even the balances. You say, I did this really, really bad thing, but uh, I'm going to make up for it, but I'm going to be really puff it up over here really good. So that might be something you would say. Or he could just say, soldiers die anyway, and that's exactly what he said. You know, things happen. Mistakes were made. And the sin inside each of us will incline us to do the same thing. We will find ways to explain away or see through old eyes. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I, I know, I know I shouldn't be doing this. But I, I, I don't know how I'd get along without this. I, don't, I really don't know. I don't know. And God wouldn't want me to suffer in this way. Or I know this is wrong, but in the overall grand scheme of things, I'm doing a lot of good. And I have a lot of pressure on me. And I have a lot of circumstances that a lot of people don't know about. So I'm just... Or in the grand scheme of things, this isn't that bad. You could say, well, I went to a sermon the other day and I read about somebody and heard about somebody that killed a bunch of people. I'm not doing that. (laughs) And you'll want to see it through your own eyes. But the truth is that it doesn't matter how you and I see it. We can decide how we see things, but the truth of the matter is what's most important is the very last verse of this chapter. Look at what this says. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It matters how God sees things. And once again, this translation of verse 27, it doesn't tell the whole story. The literal Hebrew of what this says is, and the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You know, David maybe thinks he got away with it at this point. And I'm sure that happens all the time in the highest echelons of power, kings and prime ministers and presidents. They do things and they rush to cover it up. And there's lots of things that we probably don't even know about. And it might be true in your own life. Little things. I hope my, if I do this, my husband won't find out. My children won't find out. My wife, my boss. Oh, I made it. I made it. Nobody knows. It doesn't seem evil in my eyes. Okay, I'll forget it. But what matters most, what matters most about this entire chapter is not about how we see things or how about David sees things. It's about how God sees things. And the most important thing to take away from this is not about how we can muster up what we see or what we do. It's about arriving at a place to know that God sees, but God is also one who will be with us through it all. Because in the final analysis here, what the Israelites find out, what we find out is that David can't be the king that they need. You know, very early on in this story, not the story that I told you today, but in the story of First and Second Samuel, David's story. The people ask for a king, and do you know what they say? They say, we need a king to fight our battles for us. And what the people have found out here is that David is the kind of king who will make other people die for him instead of a king who will die for his people. That he's not out there fighting their battles for him anymore. You and I need people to fight our battles for us. We need a king to fight our battles for us. And if you don't think you have a battle to fight, you're wrong because my hope in this sermon, and this is a terrible thing to hope for a whole group of people. I prayed about this this week. I I hoped and prayed for this. This is terrible. But that your conscience would be pricked by this story. That you would look at it and you would say, oh man, there are things in my life that I wish were different. There are things that I've been doing that I need to leave behind. There are things that I should be doing that I'm not doing. And I want your conscience to be pricked. But I don't want it to be pricked in a way that you feel despair 
or that you feel like you need to turn away or you feel like you don't belong. I want to direct you to a king who doesn't make people die for his lies, but will die for yours. I want to direct you to a king who looks at you and says there is no greater love than this, that somebody would lay down his life for his friends. And if you don't think that God calls you friends in Jesus Christ, you're wrong. Jesus looks at you and says, this is my friend. Oh, the one that made all those mistakes? Yeah. You mean the one that made the things that are bigger than mistakes? Yeah. And you're gonna lay down your life for that one? Yes, I have. He's fighting your battles for you. He's fighting your battle of forgiveness for you right now as you're hearing this. I hope that you're thinking, I need forgiveness for this. And I know sometimes we say to each other, and this is a good thing, sometimes we say to each other, you know, you need to forgive yourself for that. There's a place for that. We don't need to carry around shame and guilt that racks us. That's not something that God wants for any of us, but the most important thing for all of us is not for us to forgive ourselves, but to be forgiven by the Lord of love, whose world this is and whose world we have a mission. For you to go to Jesus, I hope you do this, even right now. I hope you do this this afternoon. You go to Jesus and say, I have a battle that I can't fight for myself and I need you to forgive me. And the truth is that he will come to you in forgiveness. The proof is the cross and the resurrection and a power which is greater than any sin. That leads me to the second battle, and this is how we'll finish up, is that you need a king that will fight your battles for you, not just to be forgiven, but also to be faithful. Because as you've listened to the sermon, I hope you've thought of things and thought, man, I'm caught up in something. I get angry every time. In this, I yell and I do it, I do it again and again. Or I am following this path of sexual sin. I, again and again, I can't get out of it. Or I find myself just turned in on myself, selfish, and I can't get out of it. I'm telling you the truth, friends. You can't get out of it. You do not have the strength to do it. And I'm not telling you that as bad news. I'm telling you that as good news. That you have a king that will be alongside you, not to make you stronger, to make you more dependent on him. You say, I can't get out of this. Good, go to him. Lean on him lean into him because he is a Lord who will fight your battles for you and be with you and walk with you all the way. I don't know how to finish up a really serious sermon like this, you know? It's a difficult thing to consider these really serious situations in our lives. But as Christian and I looked at this passage, as we've looked at the whole story of David, you know, scripture allots about three chapters just to this incident. 2 Samuel 11, 12, and an entire psalm. There's probably actually more that go into this. And the reason is not to make us feel bad about our sin or make us feel guilty or to make us feel shameful. The reason is that you've made, been made in love and for love by God. And anytime you and I veer off into that, being bent in another way, God wants us to be his people. He wants us to be filled with love and pouring out love. He wants to be people that not take but give Go to God. Go to your king who fights your battles for you. Will you do that? Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do need you to fight our battles for us, our battle of temptation, our battle of leaving our mission, our battle of being forgiven. We can't do any of those things for us, so would you please come to us, come to each person in this room, each person watching online. Our Lord Jesus, you are the great King who lays down your life. We are grateful and thankful. Help us to see it. Some of us see that really clearly, that you've laid down your life for us.
Some of us can't see it. I pray especially for people who have never seen that you are a king that lays down your life, not just for your people, but for each person here. For each person here, let that truth rest on them that you, Jesus, have laid down your life for them. And then take that truth and plant it deep in their heart. Plant it deep in my heart. And uproot sin by your strength and instead plant in the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.